You found us. Welcome to Emergency Protocol, a podcast for people who are stressy and depressy. We are your hosts, Denise and Jackie Freed. That's my mama. And that's my baby. We are sharing our 12 steps reimagined for today's society. And our bumpy, pothole-ridden spiritual paths. And we're bringing you along for the ride. This is us doing the actual work. When the shit hits the fan, you know it's time for... Emergency Emergency Protocol. Hello. You found us. Welcome to Emergency Protocol, a podcast for people who are stressy and depressy. We are your hosts, Denise and Jackie Freed. That's my mama. And that's my baby. We are sharing our 12 steps reimagined for today's society. And our bumpy, pothole-ridden spiritual paths. And we're bringing you along for the ride. This is us doing the actual work. When the shit hits the fan, you know it's time for Emergency Protocol. So welcome to our podcast. This is Mm -hmm. our first, very first podcast. And this has been in the works now for a little bit since January of 2020, I started Mm -hmm. writing. And as of as a way of introduction, we're going to just do a little moment of what it was like for each of us, mm-hmm. what happened, and what it's like now. Hopefully, you can identify with the feelings being shared. Um, our stories may be very different, uh, but we're here to tell you about our process for working these steps. Mm-hmm. You want to go first? You want me to go first? You can go first. All right. All right. So what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Mm-hmm. What it was like was I grew up um, on the west side of Santa Monica, California, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, we were on the poor side of town. Mm-hmm. In those days, it was called Dogtown, mm-hmm. which was a reference to the area that I lived in and you can watch any type in Dogtown skates and you'll find what you'll find out what that was all about. (laughs) But from a very early age, so when I was really young, I had asthma and I missed a lot of school. Mm. So I felt like that already made me different and also not a part of like, I, you know, of groups. Mm -hmm. And then in, Third grade, I went to an alternative school, which was a small, a small kind of experiential school that was run by parents and and educators. There were 120 kids, and uh, there were like, you know, ten in each grade. So like five kids, five girls, five mm-hmm. boys in each grade, K through 12. So it was very very small. And we shared a we shared a building with a continuation school mm-hmm. and a continuation school. I don't know what they call them now, but this is what they called it then was mm-hmm. for kids who were not able to go to regular school um, because they were 
problem children, but mm-hmm. all, not completely dropped out. And it was a way of kind of completing their high school education. So we had this half kind of granola-y avocado sprout school <laughs> and half kind of half dropout school. And by sixth grade, I, you know, I, I no longer felt a part of any group. Um, I was very isolated and I had tried to fit in with different kinds of groups at that school. So if it was with the continuation kids, I remember trying to hang out with the kind of Chola girls and like Mm -hmm. wearing khaki pants and like, you know, dressing up my eyebrows and, Mm. you know, trying to fit in that way. And Mm -hmm. then, uh, with the surfer, cool, chic girls, Mm. Malibu-y girls who I just, you know, I didn't surf, so it didn't, you know, (laughs) it just wasn't there. (laughs) And I also didn't feel pretty enough, even though Mm. I I think I was pretty, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I just didn't feel it. And then, yeah. So I tried to fit into all these different groups, and that was the setup for my behavior going into middle school and high school mm. and and kind of stopped when I eventually got sober at the age of 20. Mm-hmm. But leading up to that, I would try and be whoever I thought the group that I was trying to be a part of wanted me mm. to be um, so that I could be accepted and liked by them. And And as a result of that, I kind of lost myself. So, you know, if I was dating somebody, I was all about them and their friends and Mm -hmm. their world. And then when we broke up, I was left with nothing and had to start from scratch to try and build my friend group up again. There were a few core girls that I hung out with that we stayed friendly with. But most of us, when we were seeing other people, we were kind of dipped out and Mm -hmm. like only seeing these other people. So it was complicated and Mm -hmm. and also during that time especially maybe from like 14 on I started ditching school a lot I was smoking a lot of weed and Mm -hmm. I was um just detruent basically Mm -hmm. I didn't feel um I didn't feel challenged in school I didn't feel that anybody gave a shit about me in school. Mm. I literally had teachers say, I'm going to get paid no matter if you pass this class or not. And Mm. like, they didn't give a shit. So it was like, why should I care about this class when you don't care about it? You know? And so, but I was, I was bright and I could do the work. Mm -hmm. I just wasn't, I didn't feel like it was. You needed a cheerleader. I needed something. And I I remember in uh, ninth grade, there was a, I, t- I ditched a lot of school. There was a dean at that school who said, please don't leave the campus. Just come into my office if you want to leave. Just come into my office and do your homework or do your work. Just don't leave the campus. So I started doing that. Mm-hmm. And I still missed a lot of classes, but I was in her office. Mm-hmm. And then um, she retired before the end of the year. And I remember having to pick up trash for like two months <laughs> at the end of the year mm-hmm. after school in order to graduate, which... Jeez. You know, and I was like, I made a a deal with the dean. She said I could do this. And they're like, well, she's not here anymore. Mm -hmm. And so totally like not honoring the the agreement. So, again, we don't care about you. Mm -hmm. You're going to be punished. Mm -hmm. You're a bad kid. Shame, 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 shame. Right. Then I go to high school. I try it out for the volleyball team. I barely make it. I get on like the last pick kind of as an alternate mm-hmm. and hung on for a bit, but I just couldn't, 
I couldn't make the practices. I didn't know how to be part of a team. I mm. didn't know how to, you know, I didn't know how to be a kind of a worker among workers. Yeah. I remember going when I was probably, when I was young, I really liked doing gymnastics and then I got a little too tall or whatever. And mm -hmm. I, and I wasn't that great at it, but I, I started, tried out for this diving team at a local park mm -hmm. and I went to the, to my first meet ever mm. and got second place and then quit. Cause I was just like, if I'm not going to get first place, I don't want to play like that. I, that was just it. I had no mm. skills for living, right? I it, either, I was a winner or a loser. There was mm -hmm. no second place, third place. There was no getting better. There was no like was build black up or white. over time or having somebody say, you have to put in the time and do the work in order mm. to get the goal you want. I just thought I was going to, win or mm. I was out. Right. And I was very competitive with women and because uh, I didn't know how to be around other women. So, mm -hmm. And so it was always like, you know, are you after the guy I want or am I after yours mm. or do you trust me? Or are you going to get my extra, like, am I going to get all the extra attention or are you going to get all the extra attention? Mm. You know, like that kind of. And so I used with the guys when I was really in my drug use and, and mm -hmm. it evolved into that. So As like a high schooler, you mean? Or like a teenager? As a teenager. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, by like the late teens, late teens, mm -hmm. high school. So by the time I was 16, I knew I wasn't going to make it through high school and I took mm -hmm. a proficiency exam to get out early. Mm -hmm. And I... I uh, went to our local college, Santa Monica College, for mm -hmm. a couple of semesters, but just couldn't pull it together and dropped out. And, you know, and then moved in with my first drug dealer boyfriend. By then I was doing cocaine, smoking weed and drinking and uh, my party life was on and I was mm -hmm. going to clubs. There's a show on right now called Daisy Jones and the Six, mm -hmm. very much kind of how I was living my life mm -hmm. at that point without the talent of being a singer songwriter <laughs> and having a, a world acclaimed mm -hmm. band yeah. <laughs> to take me on the road. Okay. So then what happened was my best friend. So I had had this one friend that I kept with mm -hmm. since I was 14. There were other friends too, but she and I stayed in touch and mm -hmm. she got sober and it was summer and I thought, God, why would anybody want to get sober in Southern California in the summertime? Like, that's <laughs> so stupid. Mm. And yet, I by then I was like smoking cocaine because mm. my nose wasn't working anymore. It was just bad. I was 20 years old and I was using with these guys and I barely had a job. And it was just, ugh, God, awful. I had the drug dealer boyfriend had moved out of his own apartment to get rid of me, <laughs> uh, was paying my rent for a while and then said, you, I'm not doing this anymore. Mm. And then so I moved back home mm -hmm. and my mom was living with somebody who had 20 years of sobriety. Mm -hmm. And he um, told me that I had to either get my shit together or get out mm -hmm. of the house because he didn't like seeing what I was doing to my mom anymore. Because, you know, yeah. I would come home, grab some clothes, disappear for a few days, never check in. They never yeah. knew where I was. It was – my room was sloppy. It mm -hmm. was just not – it was like living with an addict, right? And and so my best friend got sober, and then I was using with these guys one night, like my regular guys that I would party with, mm -hmm. and – my friend called me there and, you know, I was 
(laughs) my friend answered the phone and he's like, it's Lisa. And I was like, you know, I gave him Mm -hmm. the sign where you're like cutting your neck where you're like, no, 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 don't tell her I'm Mm -hmm. here. And he's like, hands me the phone. Uh. And she's, she just said, hey, I'm thinking about going to this meeting tomorrow. You want to go with me? And I was like, what? Mm, okay. Mm. And I was like, I don't know why I said okay. I'd mm-hmm. never said okay before, but I did. And that after I hung up with her, I went into the bathroom and I looked at myself in the mirror. Mm. And I was unrecognizable to myself. Mm. I was like... You know, my eyes were a little yellow. My skin was pale. I had no, like, hopes or dreams or goals. Mm -hmm. I was only 20 years old and, like, nothing. Got nothing. And so I went to that meeting and met this cute guy there who eventually became your dad, (laughs) which Uh is a whole other story for another episode. Mm -hmm. Went to the meeting. Your dad was the speaker at the meeting. Mm -hmm. And I found out this cute guy was going bowling with all these people sober bowling afterwards. Mm. So I ran home, grabbed some socks, and went to the bowling alley to do some R&D on my future boyfriend, super sober boyfriend. Mm. And then started going to meetings. Now, that was in November of 1985. Yeah. And my sobriety date is April 3rd, 1986. So I'm coming up actually in about a week on 37 years, which is kind of crazy. So I got sober when I was 20 and I'll have 37 years. And now what it's like now is... I mean, I'm cutting from then, it, it, you know, I did a lot of work from mm-hmm. then to now with a lot of people and with a lot of help and a lot of meetings and a lot of writing and a lot of looking at my shadow self and a lot of making amends and praying and meditating and, you know, again, looking at myself. The, the thing with the this kind of work is that it's never over. So, mm-hmm. you know, I never get past the point of being human. And being human means I'm going to make mistakes and I'm not always going to live up to my best self. And so what it's like now is from being a dropout in high school, I'm managing a an office that does about $2 billion worth of volume sales every year for a Fortune 500 company. And I manage about 300 people plus other groups of people that manage other people. So I, I have a pretty big role in my in my work. And that was all due to show, suiting up and showing up in 12-step rooms. Mm learning how to be responsible by bringing a cake to a meeting, greeting, being a greeter, being a, a treasurer, collecting dollars and paying the rent for our room and buy, paying people back for the food they bought and mm-hmm. being a secretary, having to go to other meetings and find speakers for the meeting that I had to show up and host basically every mm-hmm. week. So I learned how to show up for my life. So I went from this very dysfunctional, irresponsible teenager to learning how to show up for myself and other people Mm -hmm. by having commitments in 12-step rooms. Mm. And that has served me in kind of my whole, whether it's 
volunteering at schools you've been at to the work I'm at now. And I have a pretty amazing life today considering where I started and where it could have gone for me and where some of the people I grew up with ended up, Mm -hmm. which a lot of them are dead now Mm. and are just totally, you know, scraping by or just dysfunctional or like just flat out homelessness and crazy. Yeah. So I feel very fortunate that I have been given a life that I really love to live and that I get to share with other people. And so in January of 2020, I started thinking about how I could help share these tools, which are the 12 steps with people who were like you, Mm -hmm. frankly, you know, and, and your friends and my kids, my friends, kids and your friends and people, (laughs) I was just watching. Yeah. yeah, I was just watching people losing their minds. They were, there was already a a huge amount of anxiety and depression before the pandemic, Mm -hmm. but then the pandemic just like put a magnifying glass on it and set it on fire. Right. So I began kind of writing out how these steps work in my life Mm -hmm. and how they've benefited me and how maybe they could benefit other people. And then, and then you and I started talking Mm -hmm. and then I shared the steps with you and then we ended up rewriting them to make them work for other people for this moment. And so, and I'll let you talk about that part because you it kind of were the impetus for us restructuring mm-hmm. the words. But yeah, that's that's what it was like, what happened and what it's like now for uh, Denise. Nice. Your turn. So I think I have always been anxious. I would get in trouble in preschool for picking at my cuticles which is like basically falls under kind of OCD behaviors, right? Picking at skin, picking at your hair, that kind of stuff, which I think our family had no real education about and wasn't really part of like the national or cultural dialogue when I was growing up until maybe like the end of high school and kind of college, right? Now mental health is a really common and pretty open conversation among a lot of people. But at the time it was like, you know, yeah, not everybody had a therapist, right? Or people had a therapist, but they didn't really talk about it unless there was like a specific trauma, right? Like, you know, if somebody's dad died or whatever, you would expect that they would go to therapy, but otherwise, um, not so much. So I have this kind of like underlying lingering anxiety problem. And in middle school, I think I started, I had like my first really serious bout of depression, which lasted a good while. I remember in seventh grade, just like crying myself to sleep every night and not every night, but just like a lot feeling very alone, feeling like my friends liked me, but didn't really like me enough to be somebody's best friend. Right. Like that was, a. it's always been something that's like, not, it doesn't bother me so much anymore, but that feeling of like, aside from my mommy, who is probably my best friend. <laughs> 
We do have fun together. We do. But like, you know, it's also <laughs> when you're, you know, 12 or 13 being like, yeah, my mom's like my my closest human. But like, that's lame. And like, I should have a best capital B, capital F best friend. Right. Which, again, just ties into like belonging and self-worth and all of those things. So. I felt like I didn't have like a best friend. I didn't really have a group because I've always just made friends with individual people and kind of bounced around. So kind of not really having that core sense of belonging, right? Even with like sports teams that I was on, sports were a big thing for me growing up. But even that I think was a big source of like self-doubt for me and insecurity because I wasn't good enough for the really good teams, but I was good enough to make like the B-level club team or the whatever and also feeling like I never really like belonged to the group because I was a goalie too for soccer at least and so that's a very individual position within the field right so you have to do separate trainings and blah 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 so that was probably not the best position for me to stick with and it wasn't I ended up quitting and things kind of got worse throughout or I guess they continued rather they didn't really get worse although I did have like some some moments of like health health issues in high school I got pretty sick junior year I had like mono and then almost had to have sinus surgery and whatever we found out it was due to a bunch of food allergies so basically I did not perform as well I did well in school but I didn't perform up to what I thought my highest and best standard was for myself you and dad had always told me growing up do your best and that's a good thing to to say, right? Not like you need to get straight A's, but when your kid sets a really high bar for themselves, like I was, I was like, okay, this is anything less than this is unacceptable, right? You mean like if you don't win first place at the first diving match you mm-hmm. go to, you don't want to dive anymore? Yeah. And how an A minus is not an A. <laughs> I still argue with you guys. It's about not. That. <laughs> anyway, and I still stand by that, right? Anyway, so. That, I think, was a problem. I also, you know, this was, I was starting to develop my own kind of, like, awareness of the world during the recession, too, which is a really weird time to kind of come into your own mind. And so just being aware that, like, our family, even though I'd lived very comfortably, like, you and dad always had your own cars, we, you owned the house, right? had a mortgage and had success and we were taking vacations and doing this and that and And private schools and private schools right so you know we had money but within the context that we were living in we were like a basically a middle class family in the scale of like the los angeles private school world there were people with just insane amounts of money and privilege and that I also didn't become aware of until I was like in middle school, right? And then some girls would come to school on free dress days wearing like, I went to a school with a uniform, which was a blessing in a lot of ways. But then on free dress days, you got to see like who had the money based on what they were wearing, what designer labels and blah, blah, blah. And also just going to different people's houses, right? Like when I I remember being younger and just being like, oh yeah, we're going on like a, we're going on a play date to so-and-so's house. And then in middle school, I was like, oh, so-and-so's house is, like, kind of insane. Like, yeah, like, our house is nice, and I have my own room, but, like, they have, like, you know, an orchard. <laughs> well, when when your sister left a play date when I picked her up from, and the door was just closing, mm-hmm. she's like, they have a bowling alley yeah. in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So like stuff that's very not normal, right? But when it's when it's the context you grow up in, that's just like how you see things. So I felt like we didn't have enough money, right? There were days where like the kids would all like my friends who all had their own cars had got like cars as a gift when they turned 16 and got their licenses would drive to lunch and I didn't have lunch money, right? Or I had like $5. So I'd go to Trader Joe's and get one of their like salads and just eat in the car by myself, right? So there was that too. And also I just had to sleep a lot. Like I had mono and like really intense sinus infections. Like there was a lot of inflammation in my body and I was just not well. And then senior year, my uncle Damon, your brother, ended up dying by suicide. And that I think brought into relief for me my own mental health issues And I remember being so mad at him because I saw the aftermath of what that does to a family. And I knew that I like he had done it. He had done the one. He was the only one who could commit suicide. Right. Like no one else could do that now because the rest of us knew too much. Right. Before then, I was like, oh, you know, that risky left turn looks kind of appealing every now and then. I would have those when I would drive. Yeah. When I was newly sober, I was like, what happens? There's this on-ramp from the 10 mm-hmm. to the 405. And I was like, I wonder if anybody's ever just launched themselves off uh-huh. that la- ramp to the 10. And yeah. then, then I thought, oh, I'd probably survive. And then I'll be all disfigured and like have to. Right. <laughs> like, mine was mine was like that. I was like, <laughs> A, first of all, like someone's going to someone's going to get hurt if I make this left turn. And also, if I do survive, we can't afford the medical bills. <laughs> So I don't want to put that on mom and dad, right? Which is like also just, you know, that's living in America, right? You're like one illness, one major accident away from like poverty or living essentially like scraping by, right? And that that alone is enough to instill a lot of like anxiety, right? No matter how hard I work, no matter how much money we make, no matter where I live, like life is going to be really hard and like bad things can happen and make things harder. Yeah. So then I go to college and I have kind of put myself on this pre-med track that I was not mentally prepared for, or I think really academically prepared for, even though I went to a really rigorous school, I just couldn't keep up. I felt like I couldn't keep up across the board with all of my classes. It seemed, again, I had a lot of imposter syndrome. I was first generation college student, right? And I was on financial aid. And I, yeah, I didn't really know how to seek help. I didn't know that I really needed a certain level of help. Um, And it felt like everyone else was able to keep up with the workload and still party and still find people to hook up with and still, you know, get all their meals and work out and whatever. And I think part of it is, you know, the school that I went to, Wesleyan, is a very work hard, play hard school. There are a lot of really capable students that go there and a lot of, again, privileged people too, right? The more money you have, the easier things are. Like it's much easier to go to therapy when you have a car to get to and from appointments, right? And this was before also Uber too. So there were like, it's a tiny little town in the middle of Connecticut. So there's no taxis or anything really. Like if you're lucky, you can book the zip car, but otherwise you're hoofing it. And the school mental health resources were severely lacking. There were not really any appointments available. Trying to get in there, you had to have like a serious crisis happen, essentially. Seriously, meaning that you're going to cause self-harm or you've been raped, basically, right? Yeah. So like you've been sexually assaulted or like you have like attempted 
self-harm, right? Or you're da- like you're a danger to yourself or someone else, right? It's like extreme, extreme cases. Otherwise, there's like a two to four week wait for a therapist or for an appointment even. So yeah, not really having any kind of other resources available was really hard. I also had a friend who I had become close with during orientation try to commit suicide like the very first weekend. And that was also really traumatic. And I think we all just kind of like buried that like we, you know, because you just had to like all of a sudden you were like in class and doing your thing and had to start showing up to stuff. And yeah, it was tough. So I think I've had this ongoing mental health, mental illness journey. And I, yeah, I didn't really know how to say that I wasn't okay. Right. I wasn't quite hitting a rock bottom until later on, I um, I went to, finally, I went to see a psychiatrist and said, hey, I think I have ADHD. I'm having a really hard time keeping up with my schoolwork, focusing, whatever. I also am struggling with anxiety. I'm really stressed about everything. I feel like I can't breathe. My chest is tight. And I also am like depressed, right? Those are like the three things that I want. And he's like, okay, so assuming that you have ADHD, and your schoolwork is what's causing you stress. We're going to put you on Adderall and see if that will help you get your schoolwork done so that you experience less anxiety and then we can look at the other stuff. I think the correct way to have to treat it would have been to address the anxiety and depression first through medication and there like, you know, I was going to him to, for talk therapy, right, every week, but or every other week something like that. But I think the other way around would have been more helpful. And I'm kind of seeing that now. So anyways, Adderall was not a good fit for me. It made me incredibly irritable. I couldn't sleep. I wasn't hungry. I was basically eating like bowls of popcorn at like 2 a.m. for dinner and then falling asleep at like 4, right? So then I'd wake up at like, you know, we had some like 8 a.m. classes. I'd be waking up at like 8, 10, right? Already late for my lecture. Some of my classes, and especially as you get to junior and senior year, your classes are smaller. It's more obvious when you like walk in as opposed to walking into a lecture late or whatever. And so that just kind of like spiraled. And eventually I got put on academic probation and they said that I needed to take a semester or two off and work on my mental health. And then I could come back if I, you know, took two classes and earned good enough grades and whatever. So that was the ultimatum that was given to me halfway through senior year of college, which is a <laughs> shitty time to be given that ultimatum, right? Because then it basically confirmed all the things that I thought about myself. I wasn't good enough to make it through all the way to graduation. All of my best friends were going to graduate without me. Essentially, I was going to miss out on all the milestones. I was going to miss out on spring fling and senior week and all the, all the things that you like look forward to that they kind of reward you with for making it through this, like these four years. Right. It was very humbling. And I also had to come clean to you two, to you and dad about what I was going through. Right. Cause you, you can't fake it. Right. I, we didn't have the resources for me to pretend like I was going to school. Like I couldn't book my flight and I just like stay in New York right. and be like low key about it. Right. Like there was no, maybe in like the seventies that would have been possible. There was no, yeah, there was, but no, there was no hiding it. Right. No, yeah. And so I had to like, kind of tell you guys how bad things were. Right. And I also felt a lot of guilt because of how expensive it was to send me to school. And you had spent all this 
earlier money on my education, right? Sending me to private school. So it just felt like all these failures were piling up and confirming my worst fears about myself. And I was going to have FOMO. (laughs) So I ended up getting a really great um, psychiatrist who we did CBT every week and cognitive behavioral therapy. And I got like two dinky little part-time jobs. I think I was helping you just like with filing and basic stuff once a week. And then I was working at a like a STEM tutoring center. And then, yeah, it was just like learning how to people again, like learning how to like waking up and going to work out in the morning and like making sure that I ate. And then eventually I signed up for summer classes and got those done. So I had to like start from scratch essentially and that worked and I made it to grad I took the year off and I went back in the spring and kind of made new friends I had some friends that I was still close with on campus but not like my core group and I but you went back I went back I got well enough to go back pretty amazing and to finish like yeah. I have the degree and thus far they haven't taken it away. So <laughs> it's pretty cool. They haven't heard our podcast yet. So yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and they're going to be like, Oh, she's telling people about the mental health resource disaster. Good. Here. We should tell everybody about the mental health non-resources at almost every university. It's every, yeah. It's an epidemic. It's yeah. not just at this one school and the issues that I had at, at Wesleyan, I would have had anywhere. Right. You know, not not only because of my struggles, but because of how schools are set up and the environment. Right. So things have been things were pretty good. Mm -hmm. I ended up having an abortion two a year after two years after graduating a year, a year after graduating 2017. And that kind of kicked off a whole new tailspin of mental health concerns where my previous toolkit the things that I had learned and the stuff that I was doing for myself up to that point stopped working and so I finally broke down and said I think I need medication went on medication and I've been on that ever since and it's been very helpful in keeping me stable I'm so glad that I did not quit my meds before the pandemic because I thought about it in like January 2020 and I'm so happy that I did not do that I'm still on them now, but I've titrated down to like a very a low dose, mm-hmm. which feels good because I hope that I can keep rebuilding my brain chemistry to a point where it's self-sustaining. And if I need them again, I'll need them again. If I need them forever, I need them forever. But just giving my body a chance to exist without chemicals, too. I think birth control also really messed me up. I can kind of see the points in my life where that contributed to me negatively, even though it alleviated one big anxiety factor which is getting pregnant because apparently that's the worst ever thing that could possibly happen to a young woman who is unmarried like that's been the that's been the uh the sentiment from the patriarchal center of the universe forever totally and turns out that i have been pregnant and i'm fine now so Yeah, we'll talk more about that in a later episode too, I'm sure. But So what is it like now? What it's like now, I was given this kind of opportunity to guinea pig 
the 12 steps by you, right? You came to me and said, I wrote this thing and I think it would be helpful for you if you work the 12 steps. I think it would be helpful for people like you. And I was like, okay, I'll guinea pig it. And so I started going through them and like just kind of answering, like writing free form to the steps, not following any kind of designated workbook or workshop or anything. And I realized that the wording felt very shameful and very like patriarchal and kind of condescending. So I proposed to you that we revise them into something that felt a little more soft and gentle and supportive and nurturing and not just like judges and there's no thighs and there's yeah. no capital hymns. Yeah. We're not, there's no we're chapter not called for, for the wives in our version of this book. <laughs> Cause that's some bullshit. And also there's also no anonymous in our version of the 12 steps yeah. either, because there's no shame in working these steps. Mm -hmm. There's no reason why you have to hide that you're doing this yeah. to anybody. Right. Cause the way we're looking at it is that it is a spiritual, they're spiritual tools. It's like a tool it's a spiritual kit, practice. Right? It's yeah. a practice that you can pick up and use. Yeah. Which is why we have that little toolbox as mm -hmm. our logo for this podcast. Yeah. Right? Because it's, they're helpful. So yeah. can you just talk about, because you haven't worked all 12 steps yet. Right. But you've done the first three. Yes. And are kind of tiptoeing around for which everyone does uh -huh. but can you talk about how just even that first bit has changed how you your outlook or yeah behavior i realized that my i do have a concept of spirituality Right. If you asked me if I was religious, I would say no. But I do have this kind of belief in in something bigger, which is still a fundamental part of our version of these steps. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I talk about it later on. But there through this work, I've kind of landed on a mantra for now, which is the universal mother is taking care of me. That to me feels like a cozy hug. And it's been kind of the phrase that I've turned to when, you know, something weird happens, right? Or something, something like at Roe work or, yeah, Wade. exactly. <laughs> or, you know, who knows, you know, pick, pick something, right? Point and shoot. Pick, pick a day. Pick, any yeah. Day. Just, you know, spin Banks around collapsing. with your forehead on the bat, like you're about to <laughs> swing a pinata and yeah. And that's been very comforting. And I realized that part of the reason I hadn't been connected to that part of myself or that concept was that it did not, I was still holding on to like a kind of judgmental version and a version that didn't have my highest and best interest at its heart. And I'm choosing to instead like embrace and accept that there are like higher frequencies and and more cozies out there for me. So at the end of the day, 
your life's getting better, but I, I'd but like to know. I'd like to know what the difference is. So you, you're in therapy. Yeah. You're taking medication. Uh-huh. You're functioning. Yeah. But still not. What's the difference between creating a higher power for yourself now mm-hmm. and where you were before you did that? Mm. I think that there's a greater level of humility in me now than there was before. Part of it was I did have some more health struggles, right? I had this like toxic mold thing going on and whatever. So I was kind of in that place again of just like sleeping a lot and existing and doing like the bare minimum to show up to work and show up for friends and whatever, turning down a lot of social invitations and kind of also letting COVID fear rule my life a little bit and climate anxiety and all of that and so I think just kind of admitting like I'm not at a bottom but I'm also not okay right now was the biggest first thing of like okay I don't have to like chin up right now I don't have to keep going yeah and I can do the bare minimum and that's okay because the universal mother is taking care of me right yeah there's something very um when when I decided to not just like believe in something bigger, because I think mm-hmm. everybody, especially in these yogi days, you know, especially where we are in Southern California, right? Yeah. Can, you know, go into the namaste kind of spirituality, mm-hmm. right? But when you switch from believing in something to mm-hmm. actually trusting that that whatever yeah. thing that you believe in is actually looking out for you and taking care of you and it's going to be okay even when things are not okay right like even when you're in a car accident or you're right. in whatever like you know stuff life happens and still i can know that i'm being looked after right yeah. and there's something very it's almost like taking your shoulders off your ears when you get to finally like go, okay, take this. Like I can't, I, I I can't control this and I can't manage it. And the outcome is not up to me. And please, I just got to let this go. Right. There's something very freeing and very, it is, it's like an exhale that you can go, okay. Yeah. I'm not carrying the world on my shoulders. It's not all my responsibility to fix. It's like, I'll do my part, yeah, but it's I'm not in charge, yeah, right. And that's kind of what what has happened too. I used to meditate every morning and have a regular meditation practice. And through that, there's a certain like it sounds so dumb and hippieish, but there's this like frequency of being that I can reach occasionally when I meditate where I just feel like I'm kind of like radiating like love and some sort of like, goodness right like I feel like a little epicenter of goodness and that same feeling when I like stop and I'm like like the universal mother is taking care of me like I can sink into that feeling right away it's pretty nice yeah all right so Welcome to our podcast. Yeah. We're going to be talking about more stuff like this. Yeah. 
I hope we can help you or you can leave notes or leave us comments and maybe mm-hmm. like it and tell your friends if you think anybody can benefit from yeah what we're talking about. And we'd love to find us on Instagram, send us some questions. Yep. And uh, we'll see you next time when we talk about what the 12 steps are. Yes. Our and, version. and why we rewrote them and yeah. what they were and mm-hmm. why they didn't work for what we're doing. They yes. work for millions and millions of people across the planet. Mm-hmm. But for what we're doing right now with who we want to help, yeah, we felt we needed to change the language, and yes. we did. So that's that. It's awesome. Yeah. And drink your water. Yeah. I was going to say you probably need to drink some I need to drink some water. I'm thirsty <laughs> after this while I'm talking. Yeah. And uh, we'll see you next time. See ya. We want to hear from you. Find us on Instagram and TikTok at 12 Steps for Everyone. That's at the number 12 Steps for Everyone. Please like and follow us. You can also send us topics you want us to dig into or follow up questions from each episode. And if you know someone who would enjoy or benefit from our conversations, please feel free to share this with them. All are welcome here. <laughs>